Let's start. For those that are guests um, with us this morning, as you will have noticed on the front of the cover of your bulletin, we're going through a 31-week series of the story, and basically, there are carefully selected scriptures all the way from Genesis through to Revelation, which hone in on the upper story of God's hand at work. And, um, and over the course of the reading, we've been hearing of shorter stories, you know, of individuals and how God's working in their life. But the story particularly highlights how God is redeeming his, his people as a whole. And we're finding about how that applies to us today, still. So we began at the start and humanity falls and our relationship with Christ is broken. And then we see how God works to restore us to himself. And he does so using the example of Israel and he's going to establish this nation unlike any other with he himself as a king. And then um, over the last few weeks prior to Easter and um, Palm Sunday, we went through the period of the judges and there's this common thread of a roller coaster of faith and compromise and the highs in the times of obedience and the desperate lows in those times and the consequences um, during the nation's sin. And so we now arrive at chapter 10 of the story and it begins in 1 Samuel. And it starts with the birth of Samuel. And he's born to Hannah, who had been trying for a long time for a child. And in Hannah's anguish, she cries out to the Lord and he hears her and Samuel's born. And he's a gift from God. And Hannah promises to give him back to the Lord for his service. And so Samuel is raised at Shiloh under the guidance of Eli the priest. The title of chapter 10 is called Standing Tall and Falling Hard for those that have read it. And I'm pretty sure it's referencing to both Eli and Saul, who rested really on the laurels of their status as leaders, but they lost the character that was required for them to stand firm in the trying times. And so the title I've given today's message is The Student Becomes the Teacher. And we're going to look at uh, what we learn in the lives of Eli, the teacher, and Samuel, the student. These chapters show the maturing of Samuel as he outgrows, really, and outmatures his master through an unwavering and uncompromising faithful attitude to his God, and he becomes a national hero. He becomes a warrior for God. And you know you're a big deal when you get two books of the Bible. But let's start with Eli, and um, we're introduced to him as an old priest who's sitting at the temple gates, and initially his story is intertwined with Hannah's. He observes her praying in her heart in the temple, and he incorrectly assumes that she's drunk, but she tells him that she's praying for a child, and, and, um, but Eli prays a blessing over her, and that's pretty much it for Eli until Hannah comes back to the temple and she's given birth to Samuel, probably three to four years old at this stage. 
And Samuel there remains with Eli, and he grows in the service of the Lord. And we're going to come back to Hannah shortly, because she's a powerful figure in the story. But for now, we're going to continue with Eli, and very shortly, unfortunately, it all goes downhill for him. Because although he's in a position of authority and power, he has failed to honour the Lord in his position as high priest. And under Eli's watch, he allows his two sons, who are priests themselves, to dishonour God in the temple. And they get away with it. So in Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 22 to 31, God had warned Eli about the behaviour that was going on, and yet Eli failed to act. And we're going to read it together. Now, Eli was very old, but he was aware of what his sons were doing to the people of Israel. He knew, for instance that his sons were seducing the young women who assisted at the entrance of the tabernacle. And Eli said to them, I've been hearing reports from all the people about the wicked things you are doing. Why do you keep sinning? You must stop, my sons. The reports I hear among the Lord's people are not good. And we're going to jump down to verse 28, where a man of God has come to give Eli a word of warning. I chose your ancestor Aaron, it says, from among all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer sacrifices on my altar, to burn incense, and to wear the priestly vest as he served me. And yet, and I assign the sacrificial offerings to your priests. So why do you scorn my sacrifices and offerings? Why do you give your sons more honor than you give me? For you and they have become fat from the best offerings of my people Israel. In verse 31, it goes on to say, The time is coming when I will put an end to your family, so it will no longer serve as my priests. All the members of your family will die before their time, and none will reach an old age. And I don't ever want to receive that word of warning. But considering that the warning is not imminent i.e. the Lord says there, the time is coming where I will put an end to your family. I think any reasonable person who gets the message and is truly convicted will try to right the wrong anyway. Am I right? But here's the thing. Eli had the authority to remove his sons from their positions as priests, but instead he allows them to continue working in the tabernacle, continuing not only to put the young girls working at the entrance at risk, but also allowing God to be dishonoured in the house. And so lesson one for today is complacency, short-term gain, long-term pain. Make no mistake about it, Eli's position and his family held the highest offices in the nation. His life was good. But through his actions, it revealed that Eli valued the comforts that the position gave him and his own peace and keeping the peace within his own family unit above above the Lord. Rather than show true love and care for his family and obedience to God, Eli takes an easy road of complacency. He sweeps the disobedience under the carpet or under the rug, whatever that saying is, and he puts his family's standing above Christ. And as we read, he pays a very costly price. Eli is aware, as we read, 
of the strife in the house. And he's got two choices. He can do something or he can do nothing. By doing something, the boy's livelihood, his son's livelihood and status would be removed. And both of Eli's son would probably withdraw um, from their father. And that is pain in the short term. But the longer term outcomes would be a chance to rewrite some of the wrongs they've done against the Lord and restore some favour. And there's some long-term serious gains. By doing nothing, which we know is the path that Eli takes, he doesn't, Eli doesn't fall out of favour with his sons. Both he and his family retain their position and status in the temple and it's just business as usual. These are the short-term gains. But as we discover, the long-term consequences of his actions is death. And God is calling this family to be different, to be set apart, because the instruction that the Lord gave in Leviticus 20, it still, st- it still stands. He says, you are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the, ma- from the nations to be my own. And yet... They've conformed to the behaviors of the world. Eli heeded his son's rebuke more than God's, and therefore he elevated his family above the Lord in his life. I'm going to jump to Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. And Jesus taught that anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me, is not worthy of me. What I'm not saying here is Eli should just cast his family aside because they made some serious errors. No, because Jesus taught the contrary. (laughs) Not just to love the Lord your God with all your soul, mind and strength, but to love your neighbour as yourself. And yes, that includes your family. The loving thing Eli could have done here was to, would be to take action, but he remains passive. If I'm a father, if I'm a brother, if I'm a son, or a friend of someone who has sinned against God, and they have not yet come to that place of conviction, then as Jesus said, I should love them as I love myself, seek their restoration as I would in my own life. And I know for some here, I know that obedience to the, in this area has meant there might be, well, there might not be peace in some family relationships, particularly if you're family away from God. But I've seen it, and the way that you continue to persevere and love them and uphold them before the Lord, it's an inspiration. It really is. You know, this is, it's a love that looks like reaching out with a text message or a phone call to that person just to tell them you love them, you care about them, you're thinking of them. Or it looks like committing them to prayer daily, like Hannah, Samuel's mum. Or maybe it looks like being here on a Wednesday night, you know, praying with others for their salvation. All right, let's now move to Samuel, the student. And because Eli is a little bit of a letdown, 
And Samuel's an important figure in the story. He's the 13th judge, 13th and last judge of Israel. And under God's direction, he ushers in the age of kings. And it was Samuel who appointed Israel's um, two first kings, we know. So let's move to Samuel. because. Um, but before I start, I really can't move past Hannah. There are two really beautiful prayers that Hannah prays at the start of 1 Samuel that give us some insight into the first three to four years of, of Samuel's life before he's taken back to Shiloh. I'm not going to read them today, but I would recommend you to go and read them. It shows us that Samuel was not just some random kid that God plucked out of obscurity. And it's no accident that he grows up to be a key part of God's upper story. Because as we look at his heritage and read Hannah's prayers, we'll find that he is the son of a prayer warrior who has built this marvelous foundation for her lad to become a warrior for Christ. And I've seen, actually I know, there are many kids who, from Hills Church who are growing up to be an amazing part of God's plan because of the foundation of their parents who commit them to prayer daily and continue to uphold them to the Lord. I'm going to read a passage from the start of Samuel's life and then another one from a little, from a little later in his ministry. First up, I'm going to read from 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, and it says, The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare and there were not many visions. I always thought a leader of the Old Testament had it kind of easy. Because, you know, when the Lord spoke to these people, it was, you know, just bleedingly obvious. You know, whether it's Adam walking in the garden alongside God, or, um, you know, God talks to Noah and he tells him the dimensions to build this ark, you know, that's really obvious. Or um, Jacob wrestling with the Lord on the road, or uh, God appearing to Moses in a burning bush. And there's just these direct interactions I'm thinking, man, these guys got it easy. How good would it be if God just comes to you and says, hey, you've got to do this? And I'll go, all right, I'm just, I'll do that. So the line in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1 was, was a little interesting to me, where it says, in those days, the word of the Lord was rare and there were not many visions. So what happened? What does it even mean? Does it mean these divine encounters were no longer happening? Or does it mean that the word of the Lord wasn't being shared amongst his people. Well, I think based on the evidence of Israel's behavior and the lack of faith amongst the nation in general, or um, even the behavior of Eli's two sons, I'm going to suggest that both was true. Eli's responsibility as the judge and the high priest was to teach the word, and instead the word, as we read, of the Lord was rare. And Eli is reserving the word rather than distributing the word, sharing it. I heard this story um, which kind of highlighted this point for me a little bit. And it's about the diamond industry. It's pretty interesting. I thought I'd share it. And for centuries, diamonds have been, as we know, a sign of wealth 
and prestige and incredibly rare to find. And so the value, because of that fact, is that the value of diamonds is quite high. However, in the 1800s, a newfound diamond trove was unearthed in Kimberley in South Africa. And the diamonds from this mine had the potential to flood the market worldwide. So one company, they're called De Beers, you might even know them today, acquired significant parcels of the land surrounding this area and mined diamonds and effectively monopolised the industry. Check this out. From 1888 to the start of the 21st century, De Beers were able to control the distribution of 80 to 85% of the diamonds throughout the world today. It's incredible. And therefore, have been able to ensure its rarity and therefore its value. It also means for a long time in our history, it's been hard to get a hold of these things. Imagine then if the high priest of the temple, where the, where the transcripts... Uh, sorry, pardon me. Imagine if the same principle was applied to the distribution of the word of God. The responsibility of the high priest of the temple where the transcripts are kept. And then if the responsibility of Eli was to share the word and yet it remained rare, then the nation as a whole has been let down and starved of a precious, precious gem, the word of God. So let's fast forward a few years, and prior to Eli's death, Samuel is being raised up, and it gets good. And as Samuel reads the word, the Lord appears. And listen for the big Samuel to Eli differentiator um, at the end of this passage. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all of Israel, from Dan to Bathsheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. And Samuel's word came to all of Israel. Where, is, where Eli is sitting on a chair at the entrance of the temple. Samuel goes and spreads the word. The second lesson, don't be a passive bystander. Don't sit at the temple gates. Play an active role in the mission. On our Easter Sunday service last week, Pastor Nathan shared um, a passage or the, a, the sermon, and it was effectively from Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. What it is, is a call on each of us individually to discover what the Lord has in store for us and not just be told about it. We've got to do something about it. The lesson I received from Samuel this week was that he could be content you know, with what he's learned and the example of Eli, and he could live a chill life, sitting on his chair on the doorway at the tabernacle, receiving all the trappings that come with the prestige. Or he himself could discover, discover the mighty plan of God and what it has in store for his life. And as we read, of course, Samuel does the latter. 
And we read in chapter 3 that the Lord revealed himself to Samuel through his word. I've learned a lot coming to church each Sunday for, for a long time. And, um, you know, some messages are easier to recall than others. For example, that Pastor Nathan fellow, they're all at the top of the list, right? But I can tell you the last five years of my life, as I've begun a deeper walk with Christ, reading more regularly from the Word, other Christian literature, and studying further beyond Sunday morning, I can attest to the Lord revealing himself to me. You know, as good as Sunday is, there is so, so much more. And as you do these things, I can guarantee your hunger to know more will grow. I just give a word of warning, though. The more that I have read, the more that I've found a lot of teaching that is very, very, very loosely based on the teaching of Jesus Christ. And it can lead well-meaning seekers astray. And so if you are unsure... I recommend that you see a mentor about what you are reading or a pastor here. I'm sure we would love to help you, to help you make sure that the author's understanding is, um, is sound. Well, let's get back to the Samuel difference. It's what Samuel does with what he's learned. That's what sets him apart from Eli. All the same, word from, all the same words from God are available to Eli as they are to Samuel. But it changes him. And he shares the word with all of Israel. The word of God is available. I mean, we could probably agree. It's pretty available to us today. I mean, I've got it in my back pocket and in the palm of my hand most of the time. But I think we can also agree that the word of the Lord in our world is yet still rare. The outcome, as you invest time into learning more about Christ, is a greater understanding of the Word of God, learning things you've never learned before. And yet, although we don't have a nation with, sorry, an audience with all of the nation, we need to share these things with the people around us. Making matters of the Lord part of our everyday vocabulary. You know, I love hearing stories from people who are passionate about something. I might not even really care about the topic, but when you hear someone who loves that thing share about that particular topic, it gets me excited. And um, I remember coming home one day, and my previous life prior to becoming a pastor was working in IT. I used to work for a software company. I just finished this big project, and it was pretty cool. It was like this identity broker that would automatically onboard um, people into our payroll and HR system, and then it would be able to authenticate all of these applications all at once automatically, and I've lost 98% of you. <laughs> Tony, if you're watching online, John, you guys know what I'm talking about. It was pretty cool. Anyway, I come home, and I'm, and I'm pumped, and I'm sharing with Julie about this project and, and my excitement. And the finer details, and funny thing happens, Julie starts asking questions about it. You know, like she's actually interested in this boring old thing that I'm excited about because Julie's interested in me. 
You know, we can be passive in our walk and keep our mouth shut about this amazing God we know, or alternatively, we can learn from Samuel and share excitedly with others the good news, particularly those that we've built relationships with. Because people care about us, because if people care about us, they'll care about what we have to say. Now, I want to touch on, lastly, one of the lessons that we can learn from this chapter, and it comes from the Israelites. By the time Samuel is old, the whole of Israel is thinking about their next leader. And the, and the nation is looking around, wondering how other nations do things. And so they see that other nations have a king, and so they ask for a king, like everyone else. And Samuel warns them. And the warning is very descriptive, very dire, and we read it in chapter 8. Here we go. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who are asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. Warning, he will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plough his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys, he'll use for his own use. He'll take a tenth of your flock And you yourselves will become slaves. And when the day comes, you'll cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you on that day. But the people refused to listen. They said, no, no, we want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. This sounds like the kind of conversation that we, Jules and I, would have at our house. You know, the kids are going to bed and they're like, Dad, can we stay up and watch a movie tonight? You know, it's going to be a late one. I'll say, oh, no, you're going to be too tired tomorrow if you watch a movie. And they'll say, oh, we don't have anything on tomorrow morning. And so we can sleep in and it'll be okay. We won't be grumpy or tired. It's a perfect opportunity. I'll say, I'll say, oh, and they probably, they know that I've got me at this stage. And I'll say, oh, look, if you, if you get your PJs on, if you brush your teeth, if you have your showers, if you do these things, but I know you're going to wake up tomorrow grumpy. Um, and, but look, if you do all of these things, then yeah. And they're like, yep, 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 yep. Off they go. And they'll, and they'll watch this movie. In a similar way, the people are saying, we want a king like every other nation around us. And God is saying, I am your king. And remember, I called you to be different to all of the other nations. And they're saying, ah, it's not the same God. I mean, I'm paraphrasing here. But they're warned and they're told very descriptively what's going to happen under a human king with all of their human, with all of this king's human flaws and frailties. And they're like, yep, 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 we're good. Off we go, thanks God. And even though they don't even fully consider the consequences. And so they get a king. And Saul is appointed. And as we read in 1 Samuel chapters 11 to 13, at the back end of chapter 10 of the, of the story, he is exactly 
what they wanted. He's a good-looking rooster. They can stand behind this guy. You know, he is strong. He is fit. He is able. And he's winning battles against all of those that he comes up against. And it's a pretty good start for him. And the Israelite... The Israelites are going, you see, Samuel? Told you. But read on. We find out that Saul, with all his ability and personality and strength and charisma, lacks humble obedience and he goes off the rails. And the nation is torn in two. And how many times have we seen this in our own day and age? The leaders with all of the charisma and enough personality and confidence, you know, it's, it's almost like all of those things that they need to overcome the humility it takes. And they rise to the top, the short-term gain. But is the lack of humility to recognize shortcomings that sees them and who or whatever else they're leading fall hard in long-term pain? You know, just three kings later, the son of Solomon, Rehoboam, all that Samuel had prophesied and warned them about had come true. The Israelites move away from their covenant faithfulness and conform to the culture they are surrounded by. And over the years to come, we see this detour result in all sorts of trouble for the Israelites. They're out of favor with the Lord, they're conquered by their enemies. Their cities are ruined and their people are enslaved. So we've come out of Easter now and as we've learned, the Israelites, once again, they've been conquered by the Romans and they are awaiting a king and a Messiah to restore their nation, someone to ride behind and get back their country. And yet, as we've learned, God does the complete opposite of what they had hoped or what they were thinking. Rather than appointing a king, he comes as the great high priest, which we learned about in our Hebrew series last year. And he himself as places king, Jesus Christ, God incarnate. And he does so by demonstration of living a life set apart, different to the world, but not separate to the world. And in doing so, he leaves a legacy that lasts hundreds and hundreds of years longer than any Roman empire has. Jesus, who provided the perfect demonstration of Romans chapter 12, verse 2, which as we're finding out, it's this recurring lesson that is taught time and time again throughout the the Old Testament. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't be complacent like Eli in those times when you are being convicted and challenged by God to make changes in your life. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Like Samuel, seek the word, seek to understand it more and allow it to change your life. And then prove 
the will of God, that which is good, which is demonstrated so effectively by both Samuel and Jesus Christ. His will being an active part in our word, sharing the news of Christ and remaining obedient to his will. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word that changes us, that renews our mind. God, that teaches us to live a life which is set apart, but not away and separate from this world. God, you teach us to be in it and love people hard. God, would you help us, God, to be effective with that teaching. Lord, to engage with your word more and more on a daily basis. God, allow it to change us, Father, but also encourage us to get out and share it and change lives as you'd instructed. Lord, we thank you for your example. We thank you that the number of times we've heard of the nation of Israel and even us, Lord, go through these cycles of faith and compromise, and yet you remain firm, consistently, consistently chasing after us. Lord, with your grace and mercy and all the patience in the world. Father, we commit our lives into your hands. And Lord, we ask that the same is true for our lives individually as it is for this church. Father, that as a that as a group together, Lord, we continue to make effective change in our community, see your name lifted high, hearts be changed, God and your kingdom come here on earth as in heaven. And we pray these things in your awesome name, Father. Amen. Amen.